Well, I'm very grateful for the opportunity um, to be here with you today, and um, thanks to David for the um, welcome, and to Gary for the invitation to speak with you here. I want to begin really by thinking about some of the terms in the title that I've been giving. Um, first of all, the patriarchs, and we know there are three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their names are often mentioned together in Scripture. They're the ones who directly receive the covenant promises from the Lord. God is identified as and identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's worth noting, perhaps, that the New Testament uses the word patriarch a little more widely than we tend to. It includes David in Acts 2:29, and also the 12 sons of Jacob in Acts 7, verses 8 and 9. Now, if you were hoping to hear about them, I'm afraid you'll be disappointed. Um, and there's more disappointment to come. <laughs> then there's principle and pragmatism. And I guess in this initial lecture, I'm really um, setting them as polar opposites um, while recognizing um, that continuum that Gary spoke of. Um, perhaps later um, speakers will um, bring some nuances. On a personal level, Principle and pragmatism are quite easy to describe and discern. We see them in how we make our decisions, everyday decisions as well as the bigger ones in life. Do we make them just based on the results we want to achieve and what we want for ourselves? And if we do, then we're being pragmatic. Or do we take into account and even begin with God's character and his promises and as well as they're revealed in Scripture? That's the principled approach. That's bringing theology to bear on our practice. So, to distinguish between being pragmatic in terms of our motivation and being practical on the level of what we do, pragmatism, um, as I'm defending it, disregards principle. But we can be principled and practical. Well, if you think about a principled approach to life in the Old Testament, surely Abraham is among those who come to mind first. In Genesis 22, he's willing to leave his home and go where the Lord shows him, willing even to put the son of promise on an altar at God's command and raise a knife to slay him, simply because he trusts in the Lord and reasons from his promises that God could even raise the dead. Abraham is a man of principle there. And if you think about pragmatism in the Old Testament, Perhaps Jacob might come to your mind. The man who seems to be willing to try anything, really, as long as it works. Bribery, to get the birthright. Deception, to get the blessing. Hard work, to get his wife. But if you're hoping to hear about Abraham or Jacob, I'm afraid you'll be disappointed too. Of course, we could find in both of those men principle and pragmatism in their lives, but we would probably need to cover a few chapters to do it. With Isaac, we can do it in just one chapter. And of course we have to, since Genesis 26 is the only chapter where Isaac is the main character. We could say that Isaac is the, the neglected member of the patriarchal triad, at least as far as preaching series, Bible atlases, and academic articles are concerned. Rather than preaching all the way through Genesis, many preachers um, focus on characters. I'm sure you've heard a series on Abraham, a series on Jacob. Have you heard a series on Isaac? Most likely not. 
Much to my dismay as I was preparing this, Sidney Gridanus also leaps from Genesis 25 to chapter 27 in his amazing book on preaching Christ from Genesis in the Old Testament. If you try to get the grips with the geography of Isaac's life, you really have to piece it together yourself. Whereas with Abraham and Jacob, the work's generally done for you in a nice laid out map in a Bible atlas, as it is with someone like, say, the Apostle Paul. And Isaac's been neglected in academic work and scholarly journals as well. With one notable exception here in the UK, someone researched this chapter for a PhD some very helpful material but unfortunately he sees the chapter as being chronologically misplaced suggesting that it's set before the birth of Jacob and Esau and disregarding verse 18 which shows it's not but then perhaps another reason why Isaac is neglected is because there seems to be little that's new in his story we can't help but read it with a sense of deja vu Isaac faces many of the same things his father faced before him. He faces famine. So did Abram in Genesis 12. He goes to Gerar. So did Abram in Genesis 20. He pretends that his wife is his sister. His father did that. His father did it twice in Egypt and again in Gerar. He meets King Abimelech. Abraham met an earlier King Abimelech in chapter 20. He becomes more prosperous as the story goes on. So did Abraham. He's involved in a dispute about wells and water rights. His father was too. Parallels, and there are more of them. They're astonishing, really. And through them, we are being invited by Moses, not to neglect Isaac, but rather to compare Isaac's response with Abraham's response and the similar situations they faced in their lives. Verse 1 begins by reminding us of Abraham and the famine he faced. And as we go through the chapter, Abraham's mentioned eight times. You see, we're meant to compare them, to understand what Isaac's doing and how he's behaving more clearly through his father's earlier actions. And that's why, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses selected these instances in the life of Isaac to record. So Isaac's neglected. And where he's not neglected, he's often criticised. In most commentaries, which have to cover the chapter after all, Isaac doesn't get a very good press. He's been called the ordinary son of an extraordinary father and the ordinary father of an extraordinary son. Of course, Michael Horton, in his recent book, would say there's nothing wrong with being ordinary in the Christian life. I'll think a little bit more about being ordinary later in this conference. But we get the point. Isaac can be seen to be a little bit tame compared to Abraham and Jacob. He's been called inconspicuous, passive, unremarkable. When the great Matthew Henry considers why Isaac was commanded not to go down to Egypt in this time of famine, while Abraham was allowed to, back in chapter 12, and Jacob's later sent there in chapter 46, he agrees with the suggestion that it's because Isaac is weak. He's a good man, Henry concedes, but at this stage a weak man compared to his much stronger father. Bruce Walke gives an even worse assessment of Isaac. 
he notes that there's a toledote of Terah giving the account of Abraham. There's a toledote of Isaac giving the account of Jacob. But there is no toledote of Abraham, which would give a much more detailed account of Isaac's life. And he believes that this is because Isaac failed to remain faithful to God. In his old age, writes Wolke, Isaac has become sedentary and stubborn, unwilling to lead his family through conflict, unwilling to submit to plans of God that differ from his own desires. And Wolke's idea is that this gap, in terms of giving us more detail about the life of Isaac, represents a divine judgment on Isaac. But hold on. I don't think these criticisms are fair or right. For example, compared to Abraham's misguided attempt to get a son with his wife's servant in Genesis 16, Isaac simply prayed and no doubt kept on praying until 20 years later his wife conceived. Genesis 25, verse 21. Unlike his son, Jacob, Isaac is monogamous. An unusual thing for those patriarchs. Unlike his son and his father, he alone never leaves the land of promise. And we read several times that he's blessed by the Lord. Isaac's faith is mixed with fear and frailty, as all of our faith is. But this chapter... This story is recorded for us as an example and for our instruction. I want to think about Isaac's story through this lens then of principle and pragmatism. And here on this slide um, is really where we're going to go today. The man of principle. Or should I stay? Or should I go? Will he go to Egypt or will he not? And then the attraction of pragmatism. And Isaac's discovered Um, through his behavior with his wife as being her husband and not her brother, as he's claimed. And then a principled withdrawal as um, there's disputes with him over these wells that he digs and he moves away and digs another one and moves away and digs another one and moves away and digs another one. And then a return to first principles as he goes back to Beersheba where his father went after Genesis 22 and builds an altar, or worships the Lord there at an altar. So first then, the man of principle, verses 1 to 6. This chapter begins with a problem, and it's a problem which is much bigger than we might realize in our setting today. There was a famine in the land, and this is a disaster for a man like Isaac. He's very wealthy because of all he inherited from his father, but a large part of his wealth consists of flocks and herds, and camels, and donkeys. So in a time of famine, his entire livestock is at risk. Now Abraham had settled at Beer Lahai Rui after Abraham died, at which stage Jacob and Esau were 15 years old. Genesis 25, 11 tells us that. And sometime after that then, this famine strikes. And we get the impression from the passage that Isaac decides to play it safe and starts to make his way towards Egypt. You see, Egypt is a haven in a time of famine. Egypt has the river Nile. And when the Nile has water, there'll be food for people and pasture for animals. And since Isaac's a nomad, it's easy for him to gather everything together and make his way down towards Egypt. And to get to Egypt, 
Isaac would have headed for Gaza to pick up the main road along the coast. Um, not sure if I clear this map. Oh, it's not there at all. Um, but just um, over on the left there, um, the lowest one on the coast is Gaza. Um, and the next red line that you, top, you can see down from it is Gerar. And Isaac is somewhere below the third red line in that diagonal there um, below Beersheba. So Isaac would have made his way up through Gerar and then picked up that coastal highway, um, the way of the sea at, at Gaza and made his way down to Egypt. And while Isaac's on his journey, the Lord comes to him and gives him three commands and a fourfold promise. And the first command's there in verse 2. Do not go down to Egypt. It's clear and plain and unmistakable. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a little bit to say here about the form of this command. Victor Hamilton um, says in his commentary in the Nicot series that this command uses al with the joseph, not lo with the imperfect. And he says that this is not so much a strong prohibition as an entreaty, a supplication, an exhortation. Much more commonly, al with the joseph is used to stop things which you're already doing. Stop going down to Egypt. Stop something you're about to do. That's the use of the Joseph that I'm seeing um, in this picture here in Genesis 26. Here are a couple of examples. Um, um, in Genesis 26, verse 2, it says there, um, Do not go down towards Egypt. And that's an immediate prohibition, Al, plus the Joseph. And it's saying, don't go down now or stop going down now. In 2 Kings chapter 1, the same verb is used, this time with low. Um, and that's a permanent prohibition, low, plus the imperfect. And in that case, well, um, it's saying um, you shall not come down um, from your bed, for you shall surely die. Um, and Elijah is prophesying that the king is going to die without ever leaving his bed. And that is exactly what happens. One gives a permanent prohibition. It's never going to take place. And the other is an immediate prohibition. And it's not that God's saying to Isaac, look, don't go down to Egypt now, but you know, maybe next week or next year, then you can go down. It's that Isaac is heading towards Egypt. That's the direction in which he's traveling. And God's saying, stop, don't go there. That's not the place to go. When I learned Hebrew, our professor used the example of putting your hand in the fire. And he said, if you're going to you know, tell a child not to put their hand in the fire, you see them about to do it. You say, stop, don't put your hand in the fire. And that's the first version, the immediate prohibition. Even though you never want them to do it, <laughs> that's the version that you use. Stop doing it. No. So, as an aside, I'm following that pretty poor example of Hebrew. Um, I just want to climb onto one of my hobby horses for a moment. I'll do this a few times um, in the course of this lecture. I'll just echo here some thoughts from John Currid in his book on Calvin and the biblical languages because he points out that professionalism and pragmatism are forcing biblical languages to be removed from many training courses for ministry that's true in the states and it's true in the uk as well even in my own denomination 
complaints about the amount of time spent learning biblical languages resulted in a shortening of the course and a lowering of the standard. Though it is, thankfully, still compulsory for those training for ministry. But let's return to Isaac. We'll see a little bit more Hebrew later on. The Lord gives Isaac two further commands. The first of them is actually programmatic, not only for this chapter, but actually for the rest of his life. He tells Isaac, dwell in the land which I shall tell you. And this verb of dwelling, it's the verb of temporary dwelling, shachan. We could think of it as living in tents. And Isaac is going to do that actually for the rest of his life, just as his father had done before him and as his son would do after him. All three patriarchs are commended for living like this in Hebrews 11, verses 9 and 10. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And the point there in Hebrews isn't that they lived in the same tents, but that they all lived a life of pilgrimage and more specifically and positively then the Lord gives Isaac a third command in verse 3 sojourn in this land and that's really to stay as an outsider here in Gerar stay as an outsider and then follow the promises in verses 3b and 4 and these promises are really a reiteration and expansion of the covenant with Abraham that we can see in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and 22. This time, of course, the promises are given specifically and personally to Isaac, not just to his father. One of my favorite Old Testament scholars is Dale Ralph Davis, and he calls this the quad promise. And here's how he outlines it um, in Genesis 26. He says, it speaks about presence, God's presence, I will be with you. It promises a place to you and to your offspring, I will give these lands. Promise of a people, I will multiply your offspring. And it also reveals God's program. In your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And of course, the amazing thing is that the promises given to Isaac are actually greater in scope than those that were given to Abraham. Now, partly this is because the Lord gradually unfolds his will to his people revelation is progressive so here we have the fullest revelation of the covenant promises yet and there are two of these elements that are revealed more fully to Isaac than they were to Abraham firstly the first one presence because more than just a promise to guide him as God gave to Abraham God gives to Isaac a promise to be with him and this is the very first time this promise is uttered in scripture It's a theme that runs through chapter 26. We can see it in the promise of verse 3, in the assurance of verse 24, I am with you and I will bless you. And also in the testimony um, later in the chapter of verse 28, when the um, Gerarite said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. And then secondly, more than a promise just to give his offspring the land, Isaac is given a promise for these lands. The lands, no doubt, not just that his father envisaged, but also including Gerar and other Philistine territory. 
The Lord is gradually revealing more fully the contours of his covenant promises. And here they're designed to give Isaac encouragement and assurance in a time of famine. So the Lord has revealed to Isaac his will. And the question is, will Isaac be principled or will he be pragmatic? By instructing him not to go down to Egypt, to stop going down to Egypt, the Lord is telling Isaac not to do what his father did when he faced a famine back in chapter 12. Because that's what Abraham did. Abram at that stage, he went down to Egypt to escape the famine. So the Lord is telling Isaac, don't do what seems right to you now in practical terms. Follow my directions for now and for the future. And Isaac responds in faith and doesn't go any farther than Gerar. And so in verse 6, we see him taking a principled approach. Isaac settled in Gerar. And in his decision to stay in Gerar, he's not thinking of the consequences or the results. His decision is based solely on God's promises and his revealed will. It's going to be difficult after all. There is a famine but he's determined to stay. He's going to be an outsider in Gerar. But God has promised to be with him. And so he stays there. And he decides to stay just after the Lord reminds him of the example of his father. A positive example in verse 5. And we'll come back to that part later. How can we apply this to the life of the church then through this lens of principle and pragmatism? Well, some scholars like Chris Wright make a direct connection between the Abrahamic covenant and the Great Commission. And they suggest that the Abrahamic covenant, um, in its initial form in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, can be divided into two parts. And this bipartite structure is marked by two imperatives, which are found in the Lord's words to Abraham. Go to the land that I will show you. In verse 1. And then in verse 2b. Be a blessing. You see them there highlighted. These are both in the imperative form. In Hebrew. And this seems pretty straightforward. And it's very neat. It gives us an Old Testament basis for mission. That's very closely connected to the Great Commission. Chris Wright speaks of it as the Old Testament. Great Commission. But one reason for looking at this a little bit more closely is because it's been used, not by Chris Wright, but used by others to justify a social justice or social work kind of approach to doing God's work. What is mission? Someone might ask. And the answer could be given from this understanding that mission could have a wide variety of applications. It's simply being a blessing to other people. It could be anything from cutting the gardens of pensioners near our place of worship to giving out food hampers to people who are in financial difficulty to preaching the gospel. Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert have a great book called What is the Mission of the Church? Published by Crossway and they examine this kind of idea. What is the church's mission? What is our task as a church, what are we to focus on? What are we to pour our energies into more than anything else? And they examine this kind of idea. A few years ago in my church and our denomination, 
every congregation, over 500 of them, had to produce a five-year mission plan. And we were encouraged to set smart goals, you know, that specific and measurable and achievable and realistic and time-bound, um, learning from that kind of model, and set goals. And we were encouraged to move from a maintenance mindset to a missional mindset. But the problem was that mission was never clearly defined by our church. And we're a relatively broad denomination, so that these mission plans that were produced by the congregations looked very, very different, depending on where the congregations were and the liberal to evangelical kind of scale. So what about these two imperatives in Genesis 12? The trouble is that sometimes imperatives in Hebrew don't function as imperatives. Specifically, when they're in a series like this, often the first imperative has imperative force, and then the second one gives the purpose or the result of the first. If you want some examples of that, you can turn to GKC 110, part I, and you'll see them. So, Commonly then, the first imperative has imperative force. The second one gives the purpose or result of it. And that's even more commonly true of an imperative preceded by a cohortative, at least as far as I could tell, looking at the examples in Bible works. And that's exactly what we have in Genesis 12, verse 2. In fact, we've got a series of cohortatives and then an imperative. And the ESV translates it very well. I think it has it in the next slide. Says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Those are some cohortatives, so that you will be a blessing. It's the purpose or the result. In other words, this is God's work. He's the one who is making us a blessing. He is the one who is blessing others through Abraham. He's not saying to Abraham, you know, nip down to Egypt there and see if Pharaoh needs his walls painted or his garden cut, you know. Um, He's really telling Abraham, you go and I will bless you and I will make you a blessing. Mission is God's work. And these verses, indeed the whole Bible, are about God's mission primarily, not ours. About Jesus, the promised seed, the one through whom the blessing will come. The vocabulary and content of that covenantal promise in Genesis chapter 12, um, corresponds directly to the preceding chapters, 3 to 11. And then its development gradually gives more detail about how will God will work out Genesis 3.15. Similarly then, in Genesis 26, we don't see Isaac actively seeking to bless the Gerorites. It's God who makes them in a limited way a blessing to them as the narrative progresses. And that happens in a typological way. Isaac, as the son of promise, is a type of Christ who is the final son of promise. And the limited way in which the Gerorites are blessed through his work and prosperity as they find peace with this powerful neighbor, it's typological of a much richer and fuller blessing for the nations through Abraham's promised seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. So while the Abrahamic promise is at a critical stage in redemptive history, it's not to be understood, I think, as the Old Testament Great Commission. It's about promise and not precept. 
We can also say um, that the Lord Jesus takes up these four promises and makes them his own in the Gospels. So, for example, he says to his disciples, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's his presence. He says to them, I'm going to prepare a place for you in my Father's house or many rooms. He says, I will build my church. That's a place. And then in response to the faith of the Gentile centurion, in Matthew 8, 11, he reveals God's program. I tell you, he says, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You see, these promises, they've now become ours. They were Abraham's. And now they're the churches in a fuller and even richer way. And that's how we move from Genesis 26 to today. And I think there's a huge challenge here for you and for me. Because like Isaac, we have received many great and precious promises. And even more than Isaac, in the light of the fullness of Revelation, we can see how those promises are being worked out by the Lord. But the declining attendance and shrinking membership in many churches have caused many pastors to look around desperately to see what others is doing, others are doing that's working and adopt it for themselves. I wonder how many churches in the UK in the past fifteen or twenty years have tried to follow the model of Rick Warren's purpose driven church or Bill Hybel's seeker sensitive church. I wonder how many leadership teams in churches have adapted lessons from their corporate management in the business world or marketing strategy in the retail world. I wonder how many pastors have been buying all those books that seem to promise that if we only adopt a new way of doing church, then the trends of decline will decrease and reverse. By the way, that phrase really annoys me. Church isn't something we do. It's who we are. And it surely derives from those other misuses of grammar, doing lunch and doing coffee. (laughs) Trivializes one of the most significant things we do as God's people, public worship. But most significantly, this kind of idea annoys me because the assumption behind it is that what we do as a church is to be decided and measured in terms of its results. And that's pragmatism in its purest form, measuring an idea based on the results it achieves. Perhaps in the UK, greater temptations than following Rick Warren or Bill Hybels come from things like the so-called cafe church or messy church or the alpha course. And then there are the distractions where the people of God can be immersed in activity in and through the life of the church, serving the community in all kinds of ways, seeking to be a blessing to those around them, but stopping short of bringing the people what they really need most, which is, of course, the gospel. I love how Rico Tice describes it um, in his recent book. He talks about the pain line, and he says there's a line that we need to cross It's great to be a good neighbor and a good friend and a good family member. 
But in our conversation and our behavior, we have to cross the pain line of talking to them about the gospel, challenging them about their behavior, pointing them towards a greater hope and a a greater um, blessing and a greater savior than all that the world promises for them. And that brings real pain. And it's difficult, but we must do it as God's people. And sometimes in the church, we fail to cross that pain line. How many pastors have watered down their preaching? They don't want to offend members of their congregation or lose people who come faithfully along. And so they don't speak about those eternal realities in a way which is clear and biblical and challenging. There was a church in Northern Ireland where the minister decided to preach 10-minute sermons. And his congregation started to grow. And it grew and it grew. And it seemed to be thriving. And other ministers were looking and thinking, well, what's the secret of this place? And they learned it's because he preaches sermons that are 10 minutes long. And people can come along and go to church and get home in no time and get on with the rest of their lives. And it seemed to be a model that was working and bringing great success. But in terms of spiritual fruit, it was empty. In Northern Ireland, churches can get all kinds of funding for community work. And there are all kinds of real needs around us. But our mission is to make disciples. That's what the Lord has called us to do. What about the church down the road that's repairing and modernizing its building? Thanks to a grant from the lottery fund. Should we apply for one? Our church is a disaster too, our building. Even though our church stands against gambling in all forms? Of course not. What about same-sex marriage? And all the challenges the the church will face in the days to come as a result of changing legislation? How are we to think about that? Maybe we'll think about some of these issues later. But let's move on to verses 7 to 11 and see the attraction of pragmatism. Love how Derek Kinder summarizes this. He says, To refuse the immediate plenty of Egypt for the mostly unseen and distant blessings demanded the kind of faith praised in Hebrews 11, 9 and 10 and proved him a true son of his father. Even though, like Abraham, he was to mar his obedience at once. And that's what we'll see in these verses. Because Isaac quickly finds himself facing another problem. And the problem he faced was even more immediate than the famine. Will his trust in God's promises transform his approach to this problem? See, it seemed at the time that if a beautiful woman was married and an unscrupulous man wanted her for himself, the simplest way forward was to kill the husband and claim the wife and that's what Isaac fears in verse 7 and as we saw earlier this is a situation Abraham faced too and when he feared for his safety in foreign territory he resorted to deception pretending that his wife was his sister now some commentators point out that he told a half truth since she was actually his half sister but I don't think we should be defending Abraham at all He'd been given promises by God and those promises included himself and his seed and so necessarily his wife. And if he really believed the Lord, he had no reason to fear for his own safety. 
and every reason to protect his wife rather than expose her to danger. To save his own skin, Abraham lied and endangered his wife. And he did it twice, first in Egypt and then in Gerar. So let's ask a pragmatic question. Did it work? Did Abraham's deception accomplish what he wanted? And we have to say, well, yes, yes, it did. In fact, the end result was even better than he could have expected. Because each time, Abraham not only survived the experience, but he came out of it well. In chapter 12, verse 16, For her sake, Pharaoh dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, female Um, Male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Pharaoh gave him all those things. In Gerar, Abraham was similarly well treated after his deception. And after the ruse was discovered, Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham. On each occasion after his lie, his life was preserved, his wife was protected, his wealth was increased. And that, I suggest, is the attraction of pragmatism. The results that it brings. The trouble is that our very human tendency is to judge actions based on their results. But we misunderstand blessing. If we ever think that it comes about because of our actions, it's all of grace. And the fact that Abraham didn't deserve any of what he received is even more of a testimony to the greatness and unexpectedness of God's grace, not a divine stamp of approval on his actions. So we can imagine Isaac thinking, you know, my dad lied and said his wife was his sister, and look how it turned out. I'm going to do it too. And though God told me not to go down to Egypt, he didn't say anything about not saying my wife was my sister. So maybe that's okay after all. And so he does it. Pragmatism can be very attractive and even seductive. To get back to the Alpha course, it has great resources. It's got a varied program. It's tried and tested. It's got lots of publicity. It gets results. But the theology of it is wrong. It's wrong about becoming a Christian. And it's wrong about the role of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life. But so many churches have decided to do it. Because it seems to work. Even if they're not charismatic in their theology. They think, well, we'll do it anyway. Let's go back to Isaac. He lied about his wife in verse 7. He's eventually discovered in verse 8. This time not by God's direct intervention like in Egypt, but by providence as Abimelech looked out of his window. What did Abimelech see? I don't think it's necessary to see anything improper or sexual here as some of the translations suggest and the commentaries discuss. In fact, the ESV translates it well. Isaac was simply laughing with his wife. Victor Hamilton looks at all seven uses of that verb, sahak, in the PL. And he judges that this is the only one which should rightly be considered in some kind of sexual way. But I think he misses the connection here between this verb and Isaac's name. Because remember, Isaac comes from that same root verb. You can see it there on the screen. The second word um, is the word for Isaac. 
The third word is the word for laughing. And the three consonants, the three letters at the end of each word are exactly the same. From the same root word, Isaac was laughing. Luther puts it like this. Isaac was Isaacing. He was conducting himself like the real Isaac and doing this with the unconcern and confidence of a married man, simply being himself with his wife. And that's what Abimelech sees. He's showing a closeness and joy in her company that's surely that of a husband and a wife, Abimelech realizes. And Abimelech's response shows that the previous episode with Abraham, some 75 to 90 years before, hasn't been forgotten in this community when Abimelech warns his people not to do anything to this man or his wife. But of course you can do a lot of harm to someone even if you don't touch a hair of their head. And that's what we see as the chapter in shoes. Isaac stayed safe. And we could say that pragmatism worked for him for a time. But it didn't last. And it didn't allow him to enjoy true blessing. Because surely that moment of happiness together, which he happened to see, was an exception to Isaac and Rebecca's general experience during that time. They were robbed. They robbed themselves of much of the joy and fulfillment of being husband and wife. And more than that, this sin had consequences. Because in the very next chapter, near the end of Isaac's life, we see Isaac, who used his wife Rebekah as a pawn in his deception, being deceived by her as she uses his son as a pawn in the deceptive work that she encourages him to do. Deception and pragmatism come home to roost. Sometimes, um, because of our principles, we stand firm and let nothing move us. There's an interesting example of that in the States at the minute, um, where um, the county clerk in Kentucky, Kim Davis, refused to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples because she would have to sign the license and didn't want to put her name to such a document because she didn't see it as being compatible with her Christian beliefs. She stood firm, even in the face of legal action, And now she's been put into jail indefinitely. David Murray, a Scotsman now serving in a seminary there, has written about this in his blog, Head, Heart, Hand. And he has the best analysis of this situation I've seen. And he thinks about how some Christians have said, you know, she should really just have resigned. And she could have avoided all of this trouble for herself. And he writes there, the basic principle behind this solution is that we walk or run away from every situation where human law contradicts God's law. So, in this thinking, we fight to stop secular laws from becoming the law of the land. But once it's done, we stop fighting. We either obey or give up our callings. But he goes on to say, thankfully, the Egyptian midwives refused to do that. Daniel refused to do that. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego refused to do that. The apostles refused to do that. Many of the reformers, the covenanters and the Puritans refused to do that. Multitudes in North Korea and China are refusing to do that today. We ought to obey God rather than men. So says David Murray. 
um, as he quotes from scripture at the end there. So there are times when, because of our principles, we need to stand firm and walk away. But there are times, I want to suggest, for a principled withdrawal. And I'm sure, like me, you've done this yourself in church life, if you're involved in leading a congregation. Sometimes we have to stop and think very clearly about what our core principles actually are. And be prepared to compromise on things which aren't a matter of principle. Isaac makes a principled withdrawal here. But not everyone thinks that's what's happening here. Some commentators see this as nature rather than grace, if you like. They see it as an outworking of Isaac's character. They think of him as a quiet, non-confrontational sort of guy who, rather than face difficulty head on, well, withdraws and avoids it. There may be something of that in him, but I'm not sure we have enough information to make that kind of judgment. One um, learned commentator who's usually at this conference, I don't see him today, um, he suggests that this is meekness, not weakness. And I think that's right. It's meekness, grounded in trust in the promises of God and obedience to the will of God. You see, Isaac had been told by the Lord that he had to dwell intense in the land he was told by the lord to live as an outsider in gerar and the lord well in his promise gives a land to him and to his offspring and so he doesn't protest when he faces the typical response that outsiders receive and while isaac at the beginning of the chapter doesn't grasp the implications of god being with him and feels he has to lie to survive he has learned a lot from his father, Genesis 18:19, including, no doubt, Abraham's understanding of the land promise. So I think the whole chapter has to be read, not in light of our assumptions about Isaac's character, but rather in light of the teaching and example of Abraham and the promises at the beginning of the chapter. And when Abraham was involved in a dispute over water rights with Lot, his nephew, in Genesis 13, I could say that Abraham similarly made a principled withdrawal and let Lot take whatever part of the land that he wanted. And I think that's what Isaac is modeling and copying here. So in verses 12 and 13, we see that Isaac receives the rich blessing of God. He sows and reaps in the same year a hundredfold. Incredible harvest. And it's because the Lord blessed him. In Hebrew, emphasis is communicated mostly by repetition. And the same root word is used three times there in verse 13. We could translate it, he became great. And he kept on going and getting great until he became very great. But the problem with providence is that it can be so easily misinterpreted. And there's an illustration of that here. Isaac deceived the men of the town about his wife. But after it, he was richly blessed. A neutral observer looking on might think there wasn't really anything wrong with what he did. That's such a great outcome in the end. I don't think any of us here are tempted by the message of the so-called prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all. Though they love these couple of verses, actually. They're not neglected in that tradition. But perhaps we've seen churches which have embraced to some degree or other a pragmatic mindset. And they seem to be flourishing. 
They get more people. They have more resources. They have great buildings that are more welcoming and more comfortable than ours. They do more things. They're well thought of in the community. And we can be tempted to follow their example simply because of the fact that it's worked. But our guide has to be God in his word, not the results which might follow. We need to learn to measure successful ministry rightly. As Kent Hughes encourages us, we need to liberate ministry from the success syndrome. If we look more closely at the story of Isaac here, the promise of blessing preceded the practice of pragmatism. And that actually explains why the Lord blessed Isaac. In fact, there's a consistent message running through the lives of the patriarchs that the Lord's covenant promises are going to be fulfilled in spite of the sin and rebellion and disobedience of his chosen people. Our sin can never prevent his purposes from coming to pass. But as the end of verse 14 hints, and the next part of the story shows, Isaac didn't have peace to enjoy this blessing. In verses 15 to 22, we could say that Isaac is blessed, but miserable. I wonder if that reminds you of any Christians today. Isaac, he faced the same kind of attitude as many refugees face all around the world today. And as we saw at the beginning, the situation's critical, not just here in Europe at the minute. See, the local people can feel threatened. They're living on our land. They're using our resources. They're doing better than we are. They've got to go. And so the locals here in Gerar piled the political pressure on until the king gave in. And Abimelech himself went to Isaac in verse 16 and kindly and politely asked him to leave. Even after he left and moved to a nearby area where his father had camped before, he didn't get peace. He set up camp for a while and worked hard to find water for his people and flocks. Now, digging wells was hard work. You had to locate a water source below the surface and then you had to dig down to it. Wells in Israel are up to 44 metres deep. One that deep has been found. So you had to make a hole big enough for someone to actually climb into and then dig on down. They got progressively wider as they went down apparently. And then it would have been lined with stones or bricks or plaster to preserve the purity of the water. And finally it would have been covered over by a large stone which often needed several men to lift it to protect it as a water source. Isaac started by digging again the wells of his father. The location of watering places would have been passed on from father to son. And Isaac had probably been there with his father too. But the Philistines had filled him in with earth. He redug them. He named them to mark his claim on them. But he needed more wells. And so his men dug some more. And they found a water. Um, water, living water it's called in verse 19. A well of spring water. Literally living water. But the herdsmen of Gerar claimed it for themselves. He moved on. He had his men dig another well. They quarreled over that one too. And no doubt, his forces were greater. He could have taken a stand against them. But he withdrew. He'd faced fierce opposition. The name he gives the second well, Setna, is derived from the word for Satan. The first use of that word in scripture. But then he moves on and digs another well. And finally gets some room. 
And he sees in that the Lord's will being worked out. The Lord has made room for us, he says. He's given us this place and we shall be fruitful in the land. Isaac was greatly blessed by God. There in Gerar. But he didn't have the peace to enjoy that blessing for a time. He was blessed but surely miserable as he was opposed and confronted at every turn. And in practice, I think this is often the case. When in spite of our sin, personally, the Lord grants us his blessing. We don't get to participate in it or fully enjoy it until we move back into fellowship with him. Well then, finally, we return to first principles. Because in the end, Isaac goes back to the beginning. He goes to Beersheba. Um, he um, worships the Lord and the Lord appears to him again. As Gordon Wenham summarizes this chapter, he says this account of Isaac's dealings with the Philistines portrays Isaac as very much walking in his father's footsteps. He receives similar promises, faces similar tests, fails similarly, but eventually triumphs in like fashion. Indeed, in certain respects, he's given more and achieves more. By the end of this story, he is securely settled in Beersheba and has a treaty with the Philistines in which they acknowledge his superiority. So God is blessing him by the end of the chapter. Now, something quite incredible about verse 5, and with this, I'll finish. Because it seems to suggest that the Lord is only confirming these promises to Isaac and will only fulfill them in the nations because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and laws. Now to explain the apparently causal connection between Abraham's obedience and the blessings of the nations, we could think about sovereignty and responsibility, God's initiative and Abraham's response, conditionality and unconditionality and covenants. I'll defer to Gary and the questions if you want to ask about any of those things. But of course we have to remember, as Calvin reminds us, that even before the birth of Isaac, the Lord promised this blessing to the nations. So it is, it must be all of grace. But I want to approach it from a slightly different direction. Because we can see the obedience of Abraham in Genesis 22 as typological obedience. If we follow through the logic here, one man obeys, many people are blessed as a result. What does that remind you of? Surely Abraham's act of obedience is pointing towards the perfect and complete obedience of another, his offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ, who obeyed not just in one climactic act, but through his whole life and unto death. And it's through his obedience that we are blessed. See, that blessing to the nations is all of grace because it comes in the end through the perfect obedience of Jesus, which was typologically foreshadowed in the imperfect obedience of Abraham. Calvin explains that God is commending the obedience of Abraham to Isaac here so that Isaac will imitate it. Having been told not to go down to Egypt as his father had, now he's been told to be like his father at his very best. And when he was at his best, Abraham put theology into practice. Hebrews 11, he reasoned 
theologically. And he was willing to risk and even be on the verge of taking his own son's life on the strength of that theological truth. We've received greater promises. We have the fullness of revelation. We have a rich theological foundation for our church life today. Let's put our theology into practice.